0: Verse 25, this is the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So this brings us a new section of the fatherhood of God, chapter 10, verse 25 through 11 through 13. In this section, Jesus continues to make clear what true discipleship means and the emphasis of his connection to Yahweh the Father. Now an expert of the religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your life, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, this first section of the parable is an expert of the law asks a question. Jesus responds to his own question, and then the expert of the law answers it. This is going to be done two times. So in chapter 10, verses 25 through 27... The expert in the law asks a question, Jesus then responds with his own question, then the expert in the law answers. Then we're going to cycle through this again in chapter 10, verses 28 through 37, where the expert will then ask a second question, Jesus will ask his second question, and then the, law, the expert in the law will respond again. The difference in this section is that when Jesus goes to ask his question, he first sets it up with a parable. So question is asked by the expert of law, Jesus asks a question, expert of law answers. The expert of law asks another question, then Jesus sets it up with this parable, and then he responds with his own question after the parable has illustrated the point that he's going to make with his question, and then the expert of law answers. This is the, the format that we have here. And this parable is not Jesus telling a parable, this parable is launched by a debate between him and the expert in law, because the expert in law is seeking to justify himself. He has no desire to really truly know the answer. He has the desire to trap Jesus and prove that he knows more than Jesus. And so this is not uncommon for Jesus. Jesus often answered people's questions with a question. Now, this is called the Socratic method. If somebody asks a question, you ask them a question in order to get them to think about it more, because people just usually want answers. But Socrates is trying to teach you how to think. And Jesus is doing the same thing. And so Jesus would often do this. Mostly the initial question that was put to him was either obscure, like the guy didn't ask the question well enough or specific enough or it came in at the right direction in order for the audience to get what was really there, or it was just impertinent, snobbish, elitist. And so Jesus often uses his question to reorient the conversation. So, the, the guy is asking, What should I do to inherit the, the kingdom of God? And Jesus is like, That's not really what you're really about. That's not what you really want to know. You're trying to teach, trap me. So, normally you would sit at the teacher's feet, any teacher, rabbi, whatever, and he was Pharisee, You would sit at their feet. And then, if you had a question, you would stand in respect. And so you would stand up and you would say, teacher, I have a question. They would say yes, and you would stand up and, and with respect, you would politely ask the question. So when the teacher in the law stands asks his question, this is actually customarily respectful. But he's doing it to test Jesus, to entrap him. So his respect is false. It's a facade. Therefore, he's a hypocrite. And Jesus automatically sees this. So he asks the question, in order to keep score points, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Basically, like, I already know I have the kingdom of God. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm healthy. I'm wealthy. I'm intelligent and educated. I'm king of God. So I want to hear your answer, because if it doesn't agree with all of us, then we can smear you publicly in front of all these people. Because everything you're doing so far seems to go contrary to what we think the kingdom of God is. So Jesus, knowing that he's being impertinent, snobbish, and elitist, just trying to ask him the question back. Well, first, what do you think it is? Let me hear your answer first. And, of course, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6-4 through four, six four, and Leviticus 19-18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And most Pharisees had debated what are the two greatest commandments, and most of them had come to the conclusion that it was these two passages. And so they at least rightfully got that the ultimate heart of the law was love God and love others. Love. So he quotes that. And Jesus says this. So then Jesus says, go and do this and you will live. Where is the brilliance of Jesus in this? It's the fact that Jesus undermined the man's desire to entrap Jesus by agreeing with him. First, he agrees with the guy wanted Jesus to disagree so that he could have this like political debate or theological debate in front of everybody and let everybody know how off-track Jesus is. But in the end, Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I agree with you. Go, do it. He's like, crap. Seriously, my goodness. We were supposed to have a debate, and I was going to show you up because you're the uneducated carpenter, and I'm the scholar. But the other thing that he does here is that Jesus undermined the man's pride by sarcastically saying, go and do this and you will live. Now the tone here, Jesus is very sarcastic. It's dripping with sarcasm. Because the tone here is what he's really communicating is, go, love Yahweh and others perfectly. You know, like you already have been doing. How's that been working out for you? Like, you think that ultimately it's just the fact that you're chosen and what makes you safe. And you know that you can't keep the law. Every Jew knows that they can't keep the law. The whole We talked about this. The goal is just to do the best you can. So you're asking what should you do to enter the kingdom of God. And I ask you what it is. You say love God and love others. And I totally agree with you. But we both know what that really means is you have to do it perfectly. If you really want to get in the kingdom of God through your own merit, then you have to do that perfectly. So Jesus says, fine, go and do it. And you'll live. How's that been working out for you? And at that point, the man's like, gosh, he got me. Not only did he agree with me, but then he shoved it in my face that no one can do that. My answer is impossible to accomplish. Which then forces the guy to think, there must be more than what our party line has been saying. See, it's easy to know in the back of your mind, we know none of us can perfectly follow the law, so we've got these other things here, but then when it's publicly said out in front of everybody, then you're like, oh, crap. That's what I actually believe? Now, at that point, you have a choice to reevaluate and find the truth or to deny and push it back in the back of your head and be content with the path that you've already built for yourself. And we've seen humans go both ways, right? We've gone both ways at different times in our life. Self-denial is very comforting. (laughs) This point, he knows that Jesus' statement is dripping with sarcasm. And he cannot let this, because this is about scorekeeping. This is about competition. And right now, Jesus got one point, point; he's got zero points. And the whole thing is that they've got to trap Jesus so they can kill him. So they can d- 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 undermine his power and authority. And so he comes back for another round. Okay? But this time, he's a little bit more careful. And he's a little bit more cocky. And he thinks he's going to be a genius. Because then he asks the question, but, Okay, but then who's my neighbor? This is actually a pretty pathetic question. Like, seriously, that's the best that you got. But what he's really thinking Jesus is going to say, Your neighbor is your healthy, wealthy Jew. Right? I mean, the only people you have to love are the people that God loves. And we all know that God doesn't love people who are sick and poor and are not Jewish, because if he did, then why would they be suffering? Why would they be blind? Why would they be crippled? It's okay, fine, Jesus, then who's my neighbor? Because now at this point, it says that he was seeking to justify himself. The first time he was seeking to entrap Jesus. But Jesus reversed it on him and entrapped him, and now he realizes that he has to love perfectly everyone. So now he's seeking to justify himself. So now he can say, oh, but now if I can get Jesus to say, my neighbor is the healthy, wealthy Jew, well, that's much easier to do. Because loving them doesn't require sacrifice because they're not needy. They already have everything they want. Loving them doesn't require, like, going in places that I'm not comfortable with because everywhere they are is comfortable because they have money and they can afford the comfort. And loving them doesn't mean I have to get to know weird people of different cultures and languages and customs and I, because they're all Jewish elite people like me, and we all shop out of the same magazines. If I can get Jesus to say, now it's not about entrapping Jesus, now it's about getting Jesus to agree with me on who my neighbor is, so then I can feel good about myself, go back in self denial, and live in comfort. That's what he's ultimately. So that's where Jesus says, No, 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 no. I'm not You're the one that set this trap. And then I turned it on you. And now you want to get out of it. I'm going to just dig you in deeper. You want to know who your neighbor is? Let me tell you a parable. Here's my question. Verse 29. But the expert was wanting to justify himself and said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him up and went off leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down to the road, but he saw the injured man and passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. This is the setup. He's telling the story in order to do this setup. And what you need to understand is the road from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jericho to Jerusalem both ways, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a, a journey it's almost two. It goes from two thousand six hundred feet above sea level all the way down to eight hundred and twenty-five feet below sea level. That's a huge drop, and it's seventeen miles. In seventeen miles, we go from all, like two thousand six hundred feet above sea level all the way down to eight thousand feet. That's more than three thousand feet, in seventeen miles. It's a rocky rugged, difficult journey with lots of switchbacks. And it's not uncommon for robbers to be hiding around corners to grab you. And of course, he plays on that fear that everybody has when they go on that road. And most people go in groups, but your groups can't be very big either because the valleys that you walk through are tight. It's a dangerous road. and It's not a safe road. And so he says, obviously, our greatest fears that we all have when we go from Jerusalem to Jericho comes true for this Jewish man. He's beaten, he's robbed. Now, this is very important. Why is it so important that you need to know that everything was taken from him, he was beaten within an inch of his life, and even his own clothes were stripped off of him? Because everything that marks his identity has been removed. He's physically beaten, which means he's so swollen in the face, you probably can't tell what his ethnicity is anymore. And all of his clothes are stripped off of it, which means we wear our status in our clothes. The clothes that you wear represent your status a lot of times. Not all the time in America anymore, because we're such a melting pot after the 1990s. Fashion just kind of went everywhere after the 1990s, but to a certain extent, your status still is represented by the emblems on your shirt, the, the badges that a general has, like the suit that you wear to work versus the, the jumper you wear to work, something like that. You can see social status in clothes. He doesn't have any money on him, so he can't open his wallet and find out what credit card. Does he have the platinum one? Okay there's nothing to identify his status, which means you can't determine whether he's worthy to be with or not by his status anymore. Everything that you think is important is now completely gone. And this guy could have a very low status and you help him thinking he has a high status and you just screwed yourself over status-wise when everybody finds it out. Or... You take the risk of not helping him because you don't know his status, and he ends up being a very high status, and then you screw yourself over status-wise because you didn't help this really wealthy person. So now you're left with just, what do I do? That's the point of him being stripped and beaten of everything. First, the priest and then the Levite come. Now, they're not helping him because, one, if they help him, they just come from Jerusalem. They've done their two-week duty in the temple. They've done all their services. Everything is purity. You have to be pure all the time. They've been away from home for two weeks at least. They have done all these rigorous things in the temple. And now they're on the way to see their family, their family after two weeks. And they don't even know if they'll get to their family alive because of this journey that they're on. And if they help this guy and touch him, what if he's dead? He looks like he's dead. I mean, if he's alive still, then no worries. You just grab him and you take him and you help him. But if he's dead and you touch him, you become richly impure and you have to go back to Jerusalem for another week to cleanse yourself. And this is screwing up your plans to come home. You've been on a business trip for over two months away from your family and you're tired and exhausted and beaten you've had the most miserable trip home you've gotten a flat tire and the restaurants were closed when you're hungry all this kind of stuff and you can't wait to get home and there's somebody over here that needs help and it could possibly ruin you from getting to see your family missing that flight and there's only one flight every week that you're trying to get the airport on i just think worst case scenario trying to get back home and that's it and they're like no i i can't take that risk and not only that What if he is a trap for something worse to happen to me? It was not uncommon for robbers to beat them up and leave them on the side of the road in order to snare the next person. Maybe this guy had nothing and they're just leaving his bait. Maybe he even deserved it. Maybe he's done some horrible sin against God and he got beaten up and God wants this to happen to him, and it's a judgment from God. And if I come and step it up, then I'm going contrary to the will of God. You see, as religious leaders, they have these very logical reasons why this might not be the will of God. So they go on. And everybody, everybody listening be like, Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know a lot of people have taught, like, maybe the audience would be shocked because even especially a Levi, a priest, would have helped. That's not the culture. The culture, they've been told their entire life, social statuses, social statuses. So everybody else would be thinking, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, yeah, that kind of sucks and that's not right. I know that somewhere deep sound and the image of God that is in me. But at the same time, the culture has told me, yeah, it's scary. What if he's some serial killer that I pick up and he slices my throat and st- as a hitchhiker, right? We think that. And there is some wisdom to that too. Like if you're all by yourself You don't just always pick up. I mean, remember, you're supposed to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, not dumb and compassionate. Okay? We can always think of these reasons why. There is some logic. But the Samaritan, but the Samaritan who was traveling came where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. That is the key in the entire parable. It's not the good Samaritan. It's the compassionate Samaritan. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day he took the two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Now we know this part already. The Jews hate Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans first. The Jews rejected the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate the Jews too. But the Samaritans hate the Jews because they were rejected by the Jews. They were hurt by the Jews. They were condemned by the Jews. They are the victims. Now, how they respond to the Jews is not godly and justified, but they were the ones who rejected. The Jews have a whole theology why they're mutts. They're subhuman. They're not deserving of God's love. They're not deserving of salvation. They can never be saved. We're going to reject you. We don't care about you. You're subhuman. The Samaritans hate the Jews back because of the way they've been treated. And so this Samaritan who sees this Jew, who is the embodiment of everything that has rejected him, everything that says you're not going to have it, that you'll never be saved, that you're less than me, he, all of his worldviews, all of his politics go out the window And all he sees is a human that has nothing and has compassion. Because here's the other reason why you need to know that he was beaten, swollen, and you don't know what he is, and his status has been stripped. Because all that stuff that gets in the way of why you shouldn't love that person is now gone, And all you can see is their humanity. And that's what Jesus is saying. Stop looking at the clothes that they wear. Stop looking at the way that they walk. Stop looking at the attitude that they have in their voice when they talk. Stop looking at all their skin color, all that kind of stuff, and look past that and look at their humanity. The person who can see through all that, even their cockiness, even their arrogance, is really just self, it's, it's self-defense mechanisms for their wounds. When you can look past all that arrogance and all that cockiness and all that hatred and all that weirdness all that stuff, and you just see this is a person who's wounded and they are doing self-defense mechanisms to protect themselves, then you're the compassionate Samaritan because then compassion can arise. And so he sees beyond that and he goes in and he takes care of him. He risks being attacked and losing his life. He risks being unclean by touching a dead person. He, he, he burdens himself by now putting this on his donkey. He goes to an inn hotel. He leaves extra money to pay for the cost. And he leaves extra money because if this guy stays in the hotel and then he st- he does, he, the money runs out and then the bill gets racked up, this guy can't pay that bill at the end of a few weeks by the time he's healthy. He can't go anywhere because he's beaten up. And then, if, and then because he doesn't have any money to give him, he's going to rack up a debt. And so he'll get healthy, but then the innkeeper will sell him into slavery to pay off the debt. And so this guy makes sure that not only does he get healthy and he's taken care of, he makes sure this guy never goes into slavery. He buys his debt and frees him from slavery, so to speak. He ensures that he has a future beyond it, he ensures that he has a future to be accepted back into the community after he is beaten up. He goes over and beyond in his compassion. And making sure that this guy is not just taken care of today, but he's set up for the future as well. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think was the actual real neighbor? And the teacher in the law says, the one who showed mercy. You've got to understand what's going on here. He can't even say the word Samaritan. Jesus says a Samaritan. But this guy is like the guy who showed Mercy, I can't believe you just made me say that, Jesus. And because I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. I'm not going to say Samaritan. So if anybody's recording this in a podcast, they didn't hear me say that. He is not happy. But he knows. He knows the law well enough. He knows life well enough that that's truly the real neighbor. And what Jesus is saying is that your neighbor is whoever you're coming home. It's not social status. It's not skin color. It's not gender. It's not attitude. It's not respect. It's not love. It's whoever comes across your path that has a need, and you're able to look beyond all that to the wound in their life and see their humanity and meet that wound, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, or whether it's emotional. And they're self-medicating with horrible sinful addictions or they're doing self-defense mechanisms with their pride and their arrogance, their anger or whatever. You're able to see beyond that and see the real wound that that's all flowing out and you seek to heal that and set them up for a future of health for the rest of their life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's who your neighbor is. Anybody who comes in your life and you're able to see their wound and you heal it or you help them find healing. Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, a lot of ways he's lowered the bar for salvation. Because when the first line of argument went through, it was you have to perfectly love and perfectly love God and love your neighbor. And if you do that perfectly, then you get into the kingdom of God. And now Jesus now said, no, you just need to have compassion for people. You just need to serve them. And that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. You just need to have faith in God and love him and and have compassion for people. And you won't do this perfectly, but you need to do it. This man had to admit to himself that he had wrongly interpreted the scriptures. When he came face to face with the living word of God, And when the living word of God took the law and illustrated it in a very practical, very humane kind of a way, the man of the law was no longer facing the literal letters of the law anymore. He was facing the application of the law, and he finally had to admit, I have interpreted this wrongly. That's the power of stories. The power of stories is to take those literalness. This is why God gave us the stories first and then gave us the epistles. Because without the the First Testament, the epistles are just a bunch of abstract theological concepts that we can do mental gymnastics of why we don't have to do that or why we already have. But with the stories of the First Testament, all of a sudden these abstract theological principles become very concrete life-love examples. He has to admit this. And what he's saying here is that the parable is pictured grace responding to need. It contrasts the response of the righteous Jewish leader who would not help their own kind with the response of the Samaritan who was the lowest human around and had every right to hate the Jewish man on the road but did not. The parable showed that one cannot use the law to find exceptions around who to love and who to love by either segregating yourself or defining for yourself who your neighbor is. One does this because they already belong to God and they want to love him and others, not to earn a position of belonging to God. Jesus is making clearly you are filled with compassion for other people because you already belong to God and God is already living in you and God has already given you that compassion. We can't foster that compassion on our own. We're too self-centered. We're too hurt and wounded ourselves. We have our own barriers and medications and self-defense mechanisms. And anybody who's been married for like five or ten years knows that. Anybody who's been in serious long-term relationships with friends or brothers or sisters know we got our own wounds that we're, we've built defenses and protectors around. And, and what Jesus said, you can't do this. Compassion is not something that comes out of you to prove why you deserve to be saved compassion is something that flows out of you because you already belong to god because you're already saved because he's working your life and this is why we need to say god give me the ability when i'm ready to flip out on my girls and like lay into them in my anger the only thing that changes me like god okay i know what i'm about ready to do please save me and then all of a sudden unfathomably this peace comes over me and and what comes out of me is not me and I've seen the evidence of that so many times to realize that that's the fruit of the Spirit. In my own effort, I just get angry and frustrated. Hearing is authenticated and doing. It is the one thing to interpret the law correctly, is another to internalize it. The core question was whether the man loved Yahweh enough to respond to the challenge. Are you finding reasons for why you don't have to do that? Or are you finding that you're welling up with compassion for that person and you feel compelled and the answer if you feel yourself finding reasons for why you shouldn't do that which i've been there i'm an introvert (laughs) okay i always have a lot of reasons for why i shouldn't do that if you're finding yourself doing that the answer isn't like i've done for many 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 times throughout my life i'll just try better this time I'll go over to the house and I won't get frustrated this time. Or I'll, I'll actually go over there and talk to them and be more engaging and not go into my introvertedness that the time. And it never really works out that well. I just go back into my same defaults. But when I, like, say, God, you've got to help me, that's when things change. Because then it's not me trying better because I have to do the law. It's me saying, I want to be like you, Christ, because I love you, and I want to love what you love, and then Christ works and helps me meet. And so it is important to know the law, but it's also important to internalize it and allow it to fulfill you because the real law is not the Mosaic Covenant. The real law is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not making the point that he is the real compassionate Samaritan. But the way that Luke has arranged this in his gospel, Luke is making Jesus' parable about Jesus is the true, ultimate, compassion Samaritan. So Jesus is just making the point that you are to be this. But Luke arranges in such a way that he's saying, Jesus, he sacrifices everything to die on the cross for you, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, Samaritan or woman or whatever. He pays your debt and ensures that not only are you healed, but you're set up for all eternity. Luke arranges this in such a way to show you that Jesus is the greater Samaritan. He is the ultimate compassionate man. And this is what true discipleship looks like. Not trying to justify why you deserve this, why you belong to God. Not trying to find reasons why you can live out the law and your love for people the way that you want to do it, where it's comfortable and convenient for you. But just merely seeing people the way that God sees them and allowing God's compassion to well up in you. And trusting that he will take care of you when it requires a significant sacrifice to love difficult people. And one of the things that helps you do that is to realize how difficult it is to love me. And how much people have sacrificed for me and my defense mechanisms and my self medications. And they've looked through that and they've decided to invest in me when I wasn't always easy or fun. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the point that the Good Samaritans make.